right, let's take our Bibles tonight, if you would please, and open them to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 6. We are in a little bit of an interlude between our regular studies on Wednesday nights. A few weeks ago, we finished up the book of Philippians. And uh, there were a few Wednesday nights when I couldn't be here, so I decided that I would bring a couple of messages on another subject before we picked up our new Bible study. And by the way, our new study will be in the book of First John, and we'll start that next week. And I'm just really excited about that. I've enjoyed uh, preparing the first messages. And First uh, John is just really a great book and a whole lot more depth in it than you would possibly imagine. We'll start that next week. But I really uh, didn't originally plan that we would have a month interval between part number one and part number two of this sermon. But it worked out that way, and it really doesn't matter so much, I don't suppose, because we're talking about uh, some different doctrines that we believe are fundamentals of our faith. Uh, These are some doctrines that I want to discuss with you and have in the last sermon that are foundational to our faith. And although there are some issues that we may talk about that are preferential issues and may not reach the Uh, level of the doctrines that we're going to talk about tonight, uh, yet uh, those doctrines are are not things perhaps that would affect the integrity of what we believe, but the doctrines that we're going to talk about tonight most certainly do. These are simply issues that we cannot compromise. We may differ from some people on uh, some protocols. We may differ on some interpretations of Scripture, some of the minor interpretations. Uh, All people don't dot their I's and cross their T's exactly in the same way that we do or that I do, if you happen to disagree with me. But on these doctrines, we have to come to agreement. We, we can't compromise on this because to compromise on the things we're talking about here would actually change the gospel of Christ. And the scripture that I'm using is from the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah preached at a time when Israel was guilty of compromise. And perhaps compromise is not really a strong enough word to describe it because there was actually wholesale abandonment of the worship of Jehovah. And we'll notice here as we read verse number 10 in chapter 6 in just a moment that the people in Israel had gone so far as to consider the word of God a reproach. And to live by the scriptures and to heed God's word was beneath them. And so when they read Holy Spirit inspired words, they thought that they were nothing more than fables. We want to read this text again, and I want to call your attention specifically to verse number 16. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We'll start with verse number 8, and uh, our text verse will be in verse number 16. Be thou instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from thee, lest I make thee desolate, a land not inhabited. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine, Turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer into the baskets. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary with holding it in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the age with him that is full of days. Now there, Jeremiah is talking about captivity if Israel does not turn back to God. Verse number 12, And their houses shall be turned unto others with their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand upon the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. 
For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to spend together tonight. We pray, Lord, you might bless your word as we teach this evening. And help us, Lord, as we learn something from the text that we have tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jeremiah says, Stand ye in the ways, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Now, the subject that I'm speaking to you tonight is old paths. Ask for the old paths. And folks, I really do believe that that is something that this generation of Christian people need to do. And that's to go back to the old doctrines of the Word of God, going back to looking at the Word of God, opening up the pages of God's Word, reading the text and praying over it, and asking God to speak to our hearts and show us the way that He wants us to go. Now, in the last message, I had just enough time to speak to you about two doctrines that are essentials for our faith. And I want to move on tonight and talk to you about some more. But before I do, I think we just need to back up a little and let me mention those again because they will tie in uh, just a little bit later on in the message tonight. But we talked about, first of all, the old path of declaration. And the old path of declaration is when the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord. And it's when we look at the Word of God as being... God's holy word. And this is the path uh, that the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God. And it's the path that says that the scriptures themselves are our only rule of faith and practice. And this is the path that says that everything that we need to know about life, what we need to know about living, about service, about our acceptability to God, about our salvation, everything that God wants us to know about all those subjects, about Him and all of His purposes are found right here in the pages of Scripture. Now we are... We often say that the Bible is plenarily inspired. And by that we mean that the Bible is the full and the complete and the only revelation that God has given. And so that means that the Bible is what we are to teach from. This is what we are to preach from. It's the only book that's our textbook. And that's what we're always going to use right here in Berean Baptist Church for all of the preaching. And we're not going to do what so many churches have done today where they just lay aside the Bible. They hardly ever mention the Bible. They hardly hardly ever read any scripture at all. Some of them don't even use a Bible. Preachers get up and they preach sweet homilies and uh, they speak from man's fallible sources. But we have nothing else to preach but the, the holy inspired word of God. This is God's word to man. And so that's what we're going to use as we preach in Berean, uh, the word that's been given by God. And so when we look into the pages of the Bible, we do believe in the Genesis account of creation. We believe that God created this world in, in six days exactly as the Bible says. Uh, we believe
believe in angels and we believe in miracles. We believe that there was a worldwide flood. We believe that Moses parted the Red Sea. We believe that David killed a giant and that Elijah went to heaven in a chariot of fire. And we believe every word of the scripture is true. And as we look into the Word of God, we don't believe that these stories that we read are allegories. They're not myths. They're not fables. This is the inspired Word of God. These are, this is the truth that God has declared. So we're not going to compromise on this. The truth of the Scripture is essential to our faith. And without this, we can't know God. We can't be pleasing to God. And friends, we can't be saved by God. And so we have to have this old path of declaration. Now, the second doctrine that we talked about was the old path of deity. We also believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus was very God of very God, so that we believe that he was 100% human, and he was also 100% divine. We believe that, and we affirm it, and we believe that Jesus is the only way that people are going to go to heaven. There aren't multiple paths. There are not paths of sincerity. There's not a path of good works. There's not a, a path of wishful thinking. There's not a path that says that you can choose the deity of your choice. There's only one salvation, and that comes in the name of Jesus Christ. And we believe that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. We believe that he was full of grace and truth, and we believe that he came to this world to bear the sins and the guilt of his people. And he is the one who saves our souls and friends. He's the only one that deserves to be praised. And so as we see the story of Jesus and as the Holy Spirit reveals God's word to us, we understand that Jesus was not just a good man. As some have said, uh, Jesus was not just a prophet, but he was prophet, priest, and king. And he bears those offices in the capacity of the one true God. And so he is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. He's one with the Father in the New And we are never going to compromise the truth of the deity of Christ because if he's not our God, then every one of us here are doomed to an eternity in hell. Now, those two doctrines are just the beginning of what we consider to be foundational. And we can't be Christians without believing those doctrines. But there's more to this, and we do need to go a little bit further on. Uh, I suppose that it should be enough that we'd be able to sum everything up under the first point, that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and that every doctrine in the Bible is true. And if we affirmed that and believed it and understood it, then we would be all right with all the other doctrines. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people that say the very same thing. And they say they believe the Bible is true, but they miss the doctrines that are in the Word of God. And so we have to go a little bit further, and we have to state some things a little bit more specifically. So thirdly tonight, we want to talk about another essential doctrine, and that is the old path of death. This is the doctrine about death. Now, the the death that I'm speaking of, of course, is the death of Christ. And there is something that is absolutely essential about the death of Christ. Now, it's not merely that he was a man and he died, because we know that all men die. But Christ's death was so much more because his death was the atonement for sin. The old path of death is a foundational doctrine called the atonement. And the atonement is achieved by the shedding of Christ's blood. Now, there's a lot of things that I could talk to you tonight on the subject of the atonement. And if you are interested in an in-depth analysis of what the atonement means and all the uh, different things that go along with that, 
then I would suggest to you that you get a copy of Arthur Pink's book entitled The Satisfaction of Christ. And there you can read that and you can find out about the nature of the atonement, the design of the atonement, the efficacy of the atonement, its application, its results, its effects, its extent. I mean, you can, it's, it's all right there. And you can discover there why the atonement is really so important to our faith. And yet for all those different aspects of the atonement, there are some people who actually believe that the atonement is not necessary. Now, I'm not going to go into what heretics, I mean, complete heretics believe about this or people that aren't even Christians because there are many people who say that they're Christians and they reject the atonement without even knowing that they reject it. And again, of course, I'm speaking about some in Christianity. I mean, we're not trying to call people who aren't Christians back to an old path that they've never walked in and never known about. I mean, there are people who say that they do believe in the atonement, but by uh, their actions and by what they say, they really don't understand what the atonement is all about. And so there are many in the Christian faith who unknowingly reject Christ's atonement because they're going about trying to satisfy God for themselves. And if you have a doctrine that says that you can depend on man in any way for your salvation, then you have rejected the atonement. If you think that good works can help save you or your works will help keep you saved, then you have rejected Christ's atonement. Now, maybe some of you don't really understand what I'm speaking of when we talk about the atonement, but the atonement is, is what we call the satisfaction for sin, what Christ did in helping satisfy God for the sins that we have committed. Now, the Bible teaches, of course, that man is a sinner. Scripture says or teaches that man is totally depraved. From the crown of his head down to the soles of his feet, every faculty of man is tainted with sin. Scripture says, as we know in the book of Romans, uh, as Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so there's not one good work that can ever come out of the heart of the natural man. We are sinful and we are separated from God. But the atonement says that Christ came to do something about that depravity. He came to lift us out of sin and to remove the enmity that exists between us and God. You see, the atonement is actually the reconciling factor. It reconciles man to God. And the reason that you and I, without Jesus Christ, without the atonement, are not reconciled to God is because sin always remains as a barrier between us and God. And that sin has to be removed. God has to be satisfied for that sin before we can ever have any relationship with God. And that's what Christ accomplished with the atonement. Now, it's impossible for any of us to remove that barrier that exists between us and God. If we think that we can, and if we think that there's anything that we can do as far as a good work or even faith itself, then we've actually rejected the atonement as the means by which God is, is satisfied for sin. You see, there are some people who believe that what Christ did in the atonement was simply to put us into a place where we would be enabled to do good works so we could satisfy God on our own. But the real truth of the atonement is that Christ alone has satisfied God for sin. Christ satisfied God by taking our sins upon him. Our sins were imputed to Christ. And then Jesus took those sins to the cross, and there in his own suffering, he paid the penalty that was imposed by God's law. And that penalty was death, and Christ's death paid the penalty. Now, what we're talking about here, of course, is not just physical death. Uh, physical death is a result of sin, but a much greater result from sin is spiritual death. 
Spiritual death is not an immediate occurrence that we die spiritually and all of a sudden we pass out of existence. Spiritual death means eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid that penalty, not just a physical death, but a spiritual death. Now, Christ is God, and only God can do this. And if you take away the deity of Christ in point number two, then you can't have an atonement for spiritual death in point number three, because only God can do this. Only God is one who can endure infinite suffering in an eternal, uh, the suffering of an eternal hell. Only Jesus could do that. And so when someone says that I must maintain good works or I'll lose my salvation, then I'll be cast into hell, that's actually rejecting the atonement of Christ because only Christ can do that. But we need to go a little bit further here and we need to add a little bit more qualification to this. And we have to state also that Christ's death was substitutionary. That means that it was in the place of the sinner. So that the sins of believers were fully put upon Christ or literally imputed to Christ so that Christ's death fully satisfied God for all sin. And as I've stated, Christ paid uh, for sin by infinite suffering uh, of hell on the cross. Now, we believe, and I want you to pay close attention to me here for the next few minutes so you don't get lost, but we believe that Christ's death was literally substitutionary and not hypothetically substitutionary. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. There are many who believe that Christ's death covers all of the sins of all people, but it only becomes useful to those that believe. So if you don't believe, then that would mean that the suffering of Christ has been wasted on you and you're going to be punished for sin anyway. Now, there are many problems that arise with that. And I want to mention to you some of the difficulties of of hypothetical redemption. Hypothetical redemption would mean that if you don't believe, then Christ, God caused Christ to suffer more than was necessary. You would be saying that Christ has suffered for sins and then you die and you go to hell and you have to suffer for those sins also. Now, that way, God would get a double payment. Then secondly, if Christ paid for all sins, then you'd have to ask the question, did Christ pay for the sin of unbelief? And if you don't believe and Christ paid for the sin uh, sin of unbelief, or, I mean, if, if he did die for the sin of unbelief and he paid for all sins, then why would you go to hell? I mean, if Christ's death satisfied God for unbelief, then the conclusion is that all people would go to hell, and the result of that would be we have a universal salvation. So you even have to take it a step further if you, if you look at it that way. That makes the gospel totally unnecessary. So we don't need missionaries. We don't need to convert anyone. And reading here in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was concerned for nothing because everybody's going to go to heaven anyway. But you would say to me, well, no, we know that's not right. There is no universal salvation because the Bible clearly teaches that that people do die. And there are people that do go to hell. So Christ must not then have paid for the sin of unbelief. Well, that opens up another whole can of worms. You're kind of stuck on both sides here. Because now, uh, if, if he didn't die for the sin of unbelief, then you have a sin that you have persisted in all of your life before you came to Christ. So how then is that sin going to be paid for? Could you pay for that sin yourself? Well, if you say so, then you've just denied the uniqueness of the atonement. And so you actually become the Savior instead of Christ. Now, you see, if if the deciding factor in salvation is your belief, I mean, under any system, if the deciding factor is your belief, then you have just become the co-redeemer. 
And really, if you want to measure that out, uh, the larger portion of redemption has actually fallen to you because the value of your belief is then greater than than the value of all the suffering that Christ had on the cross. I mean, all that Christ could do for you is not as good as your belief because your belief is the thing that was the determining factor. Now, you see the problems that you run into at the death of Christ should cover the sins of all men regardless? Well, hypothetical substitution can't work. Now, some people listen to that and they say, well, that's just confoundingly complex. But I don't really think that's too complex at all. In fact, you better be thinking about such things as this before you preach because this is the difference between a false gospel and a true gospel. Well, now maybe I've got you confused. What are we going to do about this problem? Did Christ pay for the sin of unbelief or did he not pay for that sin? Well, here's where we have to say that the death of Christ was literally substitutionary and that Christ paid a corresponding penalty for sins that are actually forgiven. So let me state it this way. Christ suffered for no more sins than was needed. The payment for sins is only for those who actually believe. All of their sins were paid for and their sins only, which should lead you to this conclusion, it infallibly secures their belief. You understand what I'm saying there? So let me go back then to the central statement. It's the old path of death. And the only way that this is accomplished by the death of Christ, is by the death of Christ. And that's necessary because that's the only payment that God will accept. And once that payment has been made, all for whom that payment has been made, they must infallibly come to Christ for salvation. Sinful man could never pay for any of the penalty. And so any work that we do has to be ruled out. And so right there, you could also put your repentance and your faith. You put those in the category as well, because if your repentance and faith comes from you without a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit beforehand, then you can't have true evangelical repentance and faith. And the reason is because that would be tainted by sin. Repentance and faith that has sin in it is no good at all. So why do we call this then an old path? And why why do we emphasize these things? Well, it's because this is the only way that God gets all the glory for salvation. You see, the Old Testament teaches this. The the, uh, apostles taught this and Jesus taught it. The true church has always held to this. Our Baptist forefathers believed this. And so this is an old path, friends, that we want to walk in. Now then we have a fourth path that we need to walk in. And that's the old path of deliverance. So we have declaration of the inspired word of God. We have the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and the death of Christ, which is atonement for sin. And now we have this old path of deliverance. And this is deliverance from sin in this life and in the life to come. Now principally here we're speaking of the doctrine of the resurrection. Now there are lots of liberal theologians today who don't believe in the resurrection of Christ or they would tell you that it's not essential. They don't believe it's a necessary doctrine. Now I'm not going to go into all their convoluted schemes tonight of how they try to get around the word of God. I mean such things as, well, Christ just fainted while he was on the cross and they put him in the tomb. It was cool there and when, uh, when the coolness got to him, he revived and then he walked out of the tomb. And we don't need to talk about they stole the body. Something, somebody stole the body and that's why they thought that he arose from the grave. We don't need the metaphors. We don't need to dance around the issue. Because the Bible makes it very clear this is an essential doctrine. The inspired writers of scripture have told us that this is an essential doctrine. And the one who gave us the inspired scriptures told us this as well. Christ taught that it was essential. 
Now, before we go through to the uh, definitive chapter on the resurrection, I want us to look at one of Jesus' statements concerning this. Now, if you'll take your Bible and, and turn over to John chapter 12, we're going to read a few scriptures here. And if you want to cross-reference this one to other scriptures on the subject, I would encourage you to do that. But what we're going to do here is let this, this particular passage stand as representative of all of Jesus' teachings concerning the resurrection. So if you look in uh, John chapter 12, starting at verse number 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said, An angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Now there, that last verse, verse number 33, establishes the context of this whole passage. Jesus is speaking about his death. He would die, and of course, to that everyone agrees. All men die. But then look at verse 24 again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, the context again here is the death of Christ, and the corn of wheat that he's speaking of that falls to the ground is his death. Now, his death was different from all others because his death uh, caused new life to come forth. And so the analogy here is, a, is of a grain of wheat that's planted into the ground, and then from that grain of wheat, there's much fruit that will come. Now, turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 6, and we'll see here how that the planning of death and the bringing forth of fruit refers to the resurrection. So if you look at Romans chapter 6 and verse number 3, here Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now verse number 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall all be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse number 8, now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now, these verses then establish the fact of the death and the resurrection, and that because of our faith in Christ, we will be resurrected as Christ was resurrected. Now, I just want to show you those scriptures because Christ's resurrection becomes the guarantee of ours. But it doesn't yet tell us, nothing that we've read so far has told us about the essential nature of Christ's resurrection. 
Now we could be led to believe that, well, we, we may arise from the grave by some other means or perhaps uh, uh, that, that's the fact that Christ did is not the thing that's necessary for us. But not according to the Apostle Paul. So now we go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here is the most complete explanation that you find in the Bible of the essential nature of the resurrection. And the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, that whole chapter is really great. But we're just going to look at a small part of it. Uh, In the preceding verses to what we're going to read here, Paul has been speaking about the erroneous doctrine that some had been teaching. They said that there is no resurrection. There isn't one. Well, Paul says this in verse number 16. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now, people can say all they want that the resurrection resurrection isn't necessary, but here Paul states it's very clearly. This is an essential doctrine, and he ties it actually to the faith of a Christian. And he says, if Christ is not raised, your faith is vain. And that word means that it's no good, it's no account, it's worthless. And he says, you are still in your sins. So the effect of that is to say that without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so the gospel then becomes incomplete unless there is a resurrection. Well, the death of Christ is good, of course, but if Christ didn't come out of the tomb, do you know what that means? It means that God is dead. And you see how all this ties together? Uh, These doctrines all fit together because if you back up to the deity of Christ and you understand and you affirm that Christ is God, then if Christ did not arise, the obvious conclusion is God is dead. And if he's dead, then he can't be deity. The atonement doesn't work. If he didn't come out of the tomb, none of this works. So these are foundational building blocks of the faith. We call them that because they are that. They're foundational. And if you start tearing the foundation out from under it, the building is soon going to fall. Our faith crumbles. We're wasting our time. And so whenever you have preachers that, that rip out the inspiration of the, of the Scripture and when they blaspheme the name of Christ and, and, and the deity of Christ and when they take away the atonement of Christ, when they allegorize the, the resurrection into a story about smelling roses and picking daisies, then you no longer have Christianity. But you know we have some people that come into a church, and to this church I've seen it happen, that people come here and they sit down in the pew and they're dazed when you start reading from the Scriptures. All of a sudden, their heads are swimming. They get dizzy. And they're sitting there thinking, you mean you really believe the Bible? You think that's true? That these accounts that are in here, these are things to be believed? And they don't make these essential connections. And what they've done here is they've followed a false Christianity. They've invented something in their minds. And what it's going to do to them is cause them to fall right into the pit of hell. These are essential things that must be believed. It makes a difference what you believe. And that brings me down to the last point of why it makes such a difference. Number five is the old path of destiny. The old path of destiny. And this is tied to the essential doctrine of the second coming of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. Now there's a lot of things that we could talk about concerning the second coming. And we've covered a lot of that on Sunday nights. We know that there is a kingdom that's coming. We know the saints are coming. Jude tells us that. We know there's a new heaven coming. The Bible says there is a new earth coming. 
And also mixed into that reality of destiny is this. Judgment is coming. Now, I wish I had time to go into all of it tonight. I mean, there's so many implications uh, concerning the second coming of Christ. The hope of believers, the Bible says, is in the second coming. We call that the blessed hope. The resurrection of our bodies is tied to the second coming. And that means the glorification of this body. You know, Paul said that we're predestined, we're called, we're justified and glorified. And so if predestination is true and the calling is true and the justification is true, the glorification must also be true. John says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, I'll be glad when we get to that study of 1 John and we look at this particular scripture, the glorified body, it's going to be made just like Christ. Now, that's our glorification. And in order to get that glorified body, according to the scripture, Christ must return. Now, let's back up once again. Let's fit all this picture together. No deity, no atonement. If Christ is deity and there is no resurrection, God is dead. And so, therefore, again, there is no atonement. And if there is no resurrection, it means that Christ can't come back. And so, therefore, we have no glorification. You see, there's a lot here. But we need to focus on this one thing for right now to close this out. And that's on the judgment. The Bible says that Christ is coming back to judge the world. And if he doesn't come back, then it means there is no judgment. And so if everything else before this is true, and the Bible is true, and everything we talked about is true, then yes, we have to believe this. As Scripture says, there's coming a judgment. And it's important to have all the foregoing doctrines that we've just mentioned correct, because you're going to be judged on those very things. You know, you're going to be judged according to your salvation. And if you don't believe those things that I've just mentioned, you can't be saved. Now, let's go back to the book of John once again, the Gospel of John. And this time we're going to go to chapter 5. And let me mention to you that the Gospel of John is one of the most important books in the Bible. You need to know the Gospel of John. It's the clearest gospel that there is on so many doctrines of the Word of God, so many important doctrines, and they're easy to understand, the easiest book to understand in the New Testament. But look at verse number 24, John 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And he hath given him authority to execute judgment also. And you can underline judgment. He hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, and the which that all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Now the key there that we want to look at is when uh, the, those that are in the graves will hear his voice. Now when is that? When, when do those that are in the graves hear his voice? Well, that's at the second coming of Christ, when he comes back again. When he comes in the air, those that are in the grave will hear his voice. And then uh, those that are in the tribulation period as well, and then the next part of that uh, uh, first phase of Christ's coming, they're all going to go to judgment. 
Now, all of that is called the first resurrection. And that covers everybody who has died believing all the way back to the time of Adam, Adam being the first believer, all the way up to the end of the tribulation period. That's what's called the first resurrection. And so Christ then is going to come to this earth, and he will establish his kingdom, and then all those that are in the first resurrection will have been judged, and then there's coming another judgment. He's going to judge all those who haven't believed. Now, the Bible teaches that there is a difference between these two judgments. Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So the first resurrection is the saved. That's for the saved. And at their judgment, they're going to be rewarded for their good. Now, it's, it's not, they're not good because of what they have done, of course, but because of what Christ has done for them. But then after that, there comes a second judgment. And this is in verse number 11 of Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now Christ, again, is coming to judge the world in righteousness. That is essential to our faith, that Christ should come back. Now, if we are to believe the other fundamentals of the faith, then this is one that also follows. If we are to believe the inspired words of Scripture, then we also have to believe that there is a heaven for the redeemed and there is a hell for the reprobate, for the damned. Now, let me add just one more piece to this before I finish tonight. And that is, if we believe in a literal heaven then we must also believe in a literal hell. If heaven is eternal, then hell is also eternal because the same language is used for both. Now, the consequence of a doctrine that says that hell is not everlasting would be like Richard Bennett said when he was here, horrendous, that would be horrendous to have a, a doctrine like that, to say that hell is not everlasting. Well, why is that? Well, it affects the language of the Bible, and it makes the language of the Bible meaningless. It actually affects the atonement of Christ, and it devalues Christ's atonement. You see, if the fires of hell are finite, then it would also mean that the suffering of Christ upon the cross was also finite. And in effect, it would actually mean that you could possibly suffer enough to pay for all of your sins, you see, we, we need Christ for this because he's the only one that could actually suffer endless punishment. And so if punishment is finite, we don't actually need Christ. We can accomplish that. Finite punishment has a finite solution. In fact, it's practiced right here in the United States. Not very often, as often as it should be, but it's practiced right here. And you know what it is? Capital punishment. You know, years ago, they, they used to burn heretics at the stake. And so if you look at it this way, well, what, what, is, what has God done that man can't do? If hell is finite, I mean, we can burn people all day long. If God annihilates the body by burning it into nothingness, then he's only gone one step further than cremation. And that is, he knows how to get rid of the ashes, finally, and we don't. You see, if man 
is annihilated instead of being eternally punished. It means that the holiness of God is affected. Because what it means is that sin is not nearly as serious as we thought that it was. Sin has a final solution if there is no everlasting hell. Folks, God's holiness is far above that. Annihilation brings God down to man's level. And it would actually be saying that all that God does for the redeemed is he builds gingerbread houses for us. And he makes us glad that we could get over the river and through the woods before to grandma's house before the big bad wolf got us. That's fairy tales. And if that's your theology and that's what you want, then choose out your references and make that your religion. But folks, that has nothing at all to do with Christianity. Christianity says that there is an everlasting hell. People are going to be punished in hell eternally for their sins. And that's why we need an all-sufficient Savior. So these then are essentials of the faith. These are old paths that we have to walk in. Declaration, deity, death, deliverance, destiny. You destroy one of these doctrines and you have destroyed them all. And so friends, I would tell you that we need to stand on these doctrines. I know that they're not politically correct. You go to churches all over, the, all over this county, all over around our area, and uh, this is not the politically correct thing to say. You're not going to tell people that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. You can't tell them that, that uh, uh, Jesus is, is God or was anything more than a man. You can't tell them that the Bible's inspired word of God. People are not going to believe that. This just is, isn't politically correct doctrine. So we know that we're not going to be able to uh, build a monument to the ingenuity of our marketing techniques with a seeker-sensitive message that builds people instead of the house of God. We're here to build the church of God. And we can only do that by preaching God's word and keep watering those seeds and waiting on God to give the increase. We have to stick by this, by these old paths, find these old paths and walk in those ways Because that's the way that God's going to bless us. So thank God for the old paths. Thank God for Jesus Christ. And folks, thank God for Berean Baptist Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look into your word tonight. And Lord, we we know that we don't stand in the faith by our own strength. I don't stand here because I'm better than other preachers that are in town. And uh, something in me that makes me better than them. The, the only reason that we know these truths and stand by these truths is because you have made us this way and you have kept us in the faith. And we know, Lord, all the glory and the honor goes to you for that. We're just thankful, Lord, that we're your people and that we have a place that we can come and worship where the truth can be taught, where people will listen and they'll go away saying, praise God, thank God for the truths of the infallible word of God. Bless our people, Lord. Help us to stand on your word all the time. Stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ and declare our faith. We give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.